0: Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. It's episode 11, and here, Lorinda and I today are getting to interview Dr. Diane Kawamura.
1: Currently, Diane is serving as professor of radiologic sciences at Weber State. She is a distinguished educator, both at the Weber State program as well as nationally. She has been involved in many of the ultrasound-related organizations, including SDMS, ARDMS, and AIUM. Diane notably has been Chair of the First Scope of Practice Task Force under President Stephen McLaughlin with the SDMS. Diane, welcome to the show. We really appreciate and honored to have you as
2: our guest today.
1: We would like to start off first, Diane, by asking you to tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up.
2: I grew up in South Dakota, and um, we actually lived on a farm and then moved to a city in Aberdeen. And um, I had five brothers and sisters. We went to a private Catholic elementary school and a public high school because uh, it's a small community and there was no Catholic high school. And then in my senior year, I went to visit um, Sister Jean at St. Luke's Hospital and applied to the radiography program, the X-ray technologist program in 1964 and received a scholarship. In those days, in 1964, when I started, they only accepted four female single students without children and got by with that. And so it was after um, putting in nearly 4,000 clinical hours in radiography. Now most students do 1,800 and think it's a lot. Um, I finished the radiography program and then moved to Utah in 1966. And so I grew up on the Great Eastern Plains of South Dakota. Uh, no, the hospital was um, St. Luke's Hospital in Aberdeen, South Dakota. It was 12 blocks from my house, and uh, so, but but was, we had cold winters and everything and it was an interesting program very different than programs whether it's x-ray or sonography today in that after uh, six months we received a forty dollar a month stipend but what that meant was we were taking call after four for six months we were taking call monday through thursday and then we became second years and they gave us a $100 stipend so we could take call on Friday through Monday morning. Oh, well, lucky. There's no such thing in uh, 2018 called stipends for students and students taking call. And so huge, huge changes. Back then, it was in 1966, when I finished the program, Uh, One of our students had already moved, uh, who went to school with me, had moved to Ogden, Utah. And there was another position available in a private radiologist office. And so my mother helped me get a, um, co-signed a $200 loan and bought me the bus ticket. And it cost, uh, or took 40 hours. And I came to Ogden, Utah on a, uh, jack Rabbit Lines and then a Greyhound bus and arrived um, on August 1st,
0: 1966. And Tennessee. you've been there ever since? All these years. So, Wow, well, and can you tell me a few of your favorite things about Utah and why you've stayed there? Well, Utah, why did I stay here? I met my husband.
2: He was the man in the apartment, uh, very close and we got married. He was from Denver and um, we decided we were going to move back to Denver after uh, we got married in about four or five years. And one night we sat down and said, why are we moving back to Denver? Every time we get there, there's 20 more blocks on the north side and we'd have to get new employment opportunities and that. And so we stayed here in Ogden. we're, we're, I'm four blocks from the foothills to climb the mountains, and uh, we liked the weather, um, and there were some issues uh, we, we talked about, but we decided with my family in the Dakotas, his family in Denver, we would just stay here in Utah. So I'm curious
1: about what was your favorite part of when you were working in
2: radiology? In, in radiology, what was my favorite um, patient. I patient and working with students I when I later went to St. Benedict's Hospital here in Ogden and I worked there for a little over 10 years and received a phone call from Weber State University. It was a college then that they had a teaching position open that they were offering to me. Again, times have changed you didn't have to apply and and that kind of thing. And I accepted that position. So for a little over 10 years, I worked at St. Benedict's Hospital. I was the clinical coordinator of the students. So I got to teach and, and work with the radiography students. And it was I love teaching because I found out I learned so much from teaching and everything and then accepted the position at uh, Weber State. I was hesitant because I was still working on uh, my associate degree, but almost finished and uh, was employed. And then when I got to Weber State, um, it was in 1978, so 40 years ago. And I'm still there, so I, I guess it is... Um, sort of a, a testimony that I love to teach.
0: And so did you, since you were in the days where radiology and, and ultrasound were kind of meshed together as one, were there ever days that you did a specific specialty in sonography or did you do multi-specialty plus x-ray and everything else?
2: Okay. When I worked at St. Benedict's before moving to Weaver State University, um, there was a a sonography piece of equipment, ultrasound, it was always ultrasound, purchased at the hospital, and it was determined that the nuclear medicine technologist, because of the caseload, would uh, learn how to use that piece of equipment. It wasn't until I was at Weaver State, the program director, um, in 1978 shortly after I got there did a feasibility study and there were less than 10 people in the state of Utah who were certified credentialed by ARDMS in um, one or two or three different areas of sonography. And she made the decision. That we were going to have a sonography program at Weber State University to address this critical need of educating um, the people who are learning OJT, um, and so she said, "You're going to be in the first class, Diane." And I said, "But I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I just started my BS degree." And she said, "Well, then we'll have to find somebody else to teach here at Weber State." So. Very begrudgingly, I accepted the position of continuing to teach radiography, getting some cardiac um, and, and medical OB and abdomen at three different clinical sites after I finished teaching, and I would be traveling anywhere from 40, 45 miles to get to the hospitals, and I was sort of very regretful that I did that until I met two people. And those two people, one of them, um, uh, her name is Laura Noreen, was so professional. And she taught me how to be enthusiastic about creating an image of anatomy, physiology, and disease with echoes. And how she treated and talked to and communicated with all of her patients She was just a beautiful role model. And the second person was Doug Emerson, and they're both retired now. And Doug, what he passed on as a role model was standards. You always place the patient first. The quality of your patient care is important and then you focus on the quality of your sonograms. And um, so he taught me so much. And
0: he,
2: every time I walked in that department, sometimes I knew and other times I said, I'll look it up, I'll let you know the next time I come. And so it was quite a learning process because in 12 months, um, I was still teaching radiography full time, learning sonography, I had to sort of postpone the bachelor's degree for a little bit and developing sonography curriculum. There was very little available in uh, 1979, 1980, and the first class that I was enrolled in had 25 students, all of them were performing sonography in local hospitals, but had no method of going through a program and uh, feeling confident and comfortable taking certification exam. And so we had study groups and the family occasionally got to see their members of the class that went through the sonography program. So wow. I don't know which answer I have. <laughs>
0: Laura and Doug um, not only passed on uh, standards and excitement about the technology, but they gave you the optimism and strength to keep going and finish all of that. So
2: It could not have been done without the total support of family. And there were many situations where they they went to the zoo and I stayed home and study and they prepared the meal and I came home and they and so I'm very grateful that it was the family. And then um, it didn't take long to put aside, I'm really sorry I went into this, because it became um, a, a career, a profession I've loved ever since and uh, enjoyed teaching. and the curriculum has changed since 1980.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it has, but but your enthusiasm is something that seems like it was born in that time, and I'm so glad you've been able to carry that through. It's amazing the impact that people can have on our entire career. So moving on to the next question, you may have already touched on this, but could you recap for our audience how you initially got involved with the Weber State Program and how you evolved into the program director?
2: It was one year, and again, in, in 1980, you would take your certification exams in October, the third week of October. Yes, you I remember went those. somewhere, and I uh, took the written examinations. By that time, I was teaching the sonography program, Um, and the sonography component, we were still on a quarter system, but I took those examinations with the students, the 25 that started the program, we had no student drop the program, and um, then upon passing, we would make, uh, we would go somewhere for our orals, uh, six months later, in the third week of March, and I went to Denver for those. And the examinations I took were abdomen and OBGYN. And of course, everybody got to take physics and medicine was the name of that exam. And um, then the program, um, we were able to get certified cardiac sonographers to work on the curriculum. uh, And I helped them with the um, pedagogy of teaching the cardiography program. And we were teaching was, people still call general, I call medical, the abdomen, superficial structures, OBGYN. Then we had a component in cardiac, adult echocardiography, and another component was added over the years, vascular, because few of our new sonographers realized we did not even have Doppler on our equipment. And it was a transition going from the static imaging um, over to the real time. It was just uh, phenomenal. And going from um, the multiple things you could do with uh, the scan converters in at that time to the real time. So um, all that changed. So relative to clinical, actual clinical, the only time I was employed as a sonographer in a clinical setting was I I covered in a couple hospitals when people were on vacations in the summer. And uh, so I would teach that we were safe and then drive to the hospital and get there about three in the afternoon and take care of the patients. And that was a real eye opener to have so much of the responsibility. But it was very helpful, again, to adjust and re- redefine curriculum to help the students move from the academic. Um, and over to the clinical application.
1: And when the topic of physics came up within the Weber State program, were you teaching physics or did you get to tap someone within the university that was a specialist
2: in physics itself? Really a good question, Miranda. There was a, a physicist who taught physics. And when I was studying then physics for the certification examination, my wonderful husband and a friend who has a Ph.D. has a Ph.D. in um, uh, acoustics helped me study, and I went to our program director and I said, you know what, the person, the physicist teaching this shouldn't be teaching this, and she goes, well, Oh, yeah, start teaching it. And so I started teaching it in the um, third year of the program. I was in the first class the second year. With the third year, physics was adopted in instrumentation. And um, so the physics was a, a challenge. But I had a, a great husband who helped me with it and a great friend and explained things that I thought, oh, got it. I I understand. So it was very helpful.
0: Yeah, that would be quite helpful to have somebody at your disposal like that. And quite the um, way to sign up is going to tell everybody that this isn't good enough because that's a quick way to get something put on your shoulders. Not like you needed one more (laughs) thing, but... (laughs) Careful who you critique, right? Exactly. (laughs) I think Joy Guthrie had a similar thing where she said, I think this should be done. And the person said, well, then go do it. And she thought, well, I better go do it now because I brought it up.
1: <laughs> you carried it well, Diane, obviously.
2: And I still get to teach physics, um, uh, the F- SBI. I know there's no such word as physics They're more the sonography principles and instrumentation. <laughs> so I still get to teach that.
0: That's great. Well, we know that you served as the SDMS president from 1987 to 1989. How and when did you start your involvement with the SDMS or what was known as ASUts? Oh, okay. yes. um, I
2: became a member when I was placed in the first program. Um, uh, I joined SDMS, and it was um, um, the ASUts at that time. And um, went to my first meeting, which was the uh, which was combined with the ASUTS and AIUM. There was a day for ASUTS, it was in, the, uh, it was in New Orleans. And um, so that was the first program. And I had one suitcase with three books and a bunch of notebooks to study and uh, uh, very much enjoyed seeing all of the exhibits and the equipment and the diversity and the... Um, I met Joan Baker at that meeting. I met Marvin Craig at that meeting. I meet mean, names that come up on the Pioneer list and have been um, um, to uh, all of the combined meetings. And since that time, when SDMS became had their own meetings in the fall and in the spring and then moved back to the fall, I have perfect attendance at the SDMS meetings. It's um, just a great experience, and it's almost like a reunion every year uh, to uh, to meet people I've worked with for a number of years, but to see all of the wonderful students and their enthusiasm for the profession is a great experience.
0: Can you tell me about the first time you met Joan? Was it at a meeting? Was it at the annual meeting? And um, and what were your uh, What were your times that you guys worked together?
2: Well, the first time I met Joan, and um, I had read uh, quite a bit uh, about her. Little was published, I had read. And uh, Joan was uh, very promising and encouraging. And at that time, she was um, at the University of Seattle. And I uh, had one of the first programs where the center, the, the academic core was centered. And then the students went to places all over the world for their clinical because she had so many affiliation agreements. And from that meeting with Joan, over the years we have agreed and we have seen uh, different issues from different sides of the coin and that, but have Tremendous um, respect for her um, and her huge contribution in helping with the formation of the professional organization, um, the uh, certification organization. And then a few years later, I actually was serving on the board of directors when we were both on the JRC DMS and was able to work with Joan, I think, almost four or five years on the JRC DMS together.
0: And were you a willing uh, nominee, obviously, for the president um, during that time that you served as president?
2: I think so, yes, I was, and I, and it's interesting because it, they have different areas, and I was in Region 2 and was elected as a Region 2 representative, and then a vice president, and then um, you sort of went up the ladder, who was president-elect for two years, then two years as president, and two years as past president. Miranda, you know the routine. Yes. <laughs> And so with all of the years um, on the board of directors of SDMS, um, when I started on the board of directors, we had children. When I finished on the board of directors, they both had already graduated from high school, (laughs) our children, and uh, so, but that was the progression. And it was a great time um, uh, because we had a meeting Um, in Illinois. And we were drawing up the long-term goals of SDMS. And at that meeting I said, we're going to double our membership in just a few years. The membership of SDMS at that time was 4,000. And one of the board members said, lady, (laughs) you're crazy. We will never have 8,000 members of SDMS. And in a recent conversation with Don Kearns, there are now almost 30,000 members that belong to SDMS. So it was a great time to learn how to put SDMS together and work with it. It was a great experience.
1: Well, you have a yeah. great passion for education, obviously, and so does Joan. Were you involved in the creation of the Educational Foundation? I think you served on that board as well at some point during your illustrious
2: career. Yeah, well, at that time, um, when the foundation was first being formed uh, with a, a huge gift from diasonics, what was diasonics?. Uh, at that time, um, the SDMS board sort of helped with the formation. And then I was appointed to the SDMS Foundation and served on the SDMS Foundation Board of Directors for uh, six or seven years. It had been a while. And the foundation had um, some great goals and objectives with the scholarships and the endowment money. And it was a great experience uh, to serve on um, that particular board. And um, first as an appointee from STMS and then being elected. It was a great experience.
0: So you are a notable author, lecturer, educator within the field. What inspired you for these ventures? And which of these involvements influenced you the most um, and were the most rewarding over the years?
2: okay let's start with authorship
0: sure. <laughs> and, and that would have
2: been um, mimi berman who at that time was the editor of the uh, journal who convinced me to take a section and become an editor um, on uh, of this particular section and then mimi and marvin craig mimi berman and marvin craig determined what we needed was a new set of textbooks And so, uh, Maureen agreed to do the um, echocardiography. Mimi was going to do the OBGYN, and this this is now the description of how the first edition came out, and we've just finished the fourth, but they called me and um, they offered that I would take care of the abdomen and superficial structures. And the first book actually had all of our names on each of the uh, textbooks. And then Mimi said, So that's the facts and we want you, but we don't want you to say no or yesterday. We're going to call you in about three hours, which they did.
0: <laughs> it it's was not maybe a whole lot of time. <laughs> two
2: hours and 58 minutes, but they called back and I said I would. And um, what I learned from those two is how to become a much clearer, concise writer. Um, They were very, very good. And we shared all of the uh, chapters for each of the three books. And their editing of the chapters I sent them for the abdomen and superficial structures was just phenomenal. What I learned from their editing, both of them. Um, It was a great experience. So that's the author, the um, relative to lecturing and giving presentations, there was a point in 1984 that the SDMS began to sort of determine whether or not they could um, feasibly have a separate conference for education from AIUM. And so that was um, Nikki Liebowitz. She was the president of SDMS. Marvine Craig was the executive director, um, contacted me and asked if I would please put together that meeting. It was in Las Vegas at the, uh, it's Valleys Hotel now, it was MGM then. And that was the beginning of that conference. Even though we had that conference, and for two more years, it was a joint conference with AIUM. By the time SDMS moved to its third educational meeting and conference, it was totally separate. And the um, breaking away, that's probably not the best term, but the independence. There's a good word. The independence of a conjoint meeting with the AIUM uh, diminished. So the third conference was then held in Orlando. Well, how did I become a lecturer? We couldn't find people to speak. Oh, I can't speak. And they could. They were so good. But there were many times that... Um, there were still two or three more slots, and so I filled in um, with those slots. And so of the about 200 presentations I have given, almost half of those presentations were um, at SDMS conference. And then we started the educator's tutorial, which has certainly um, increased, in with the, uh, but the educator's tutorial, the first one was four hours long, and we really uh, stretch out our knowledge to cover the four hours and now it's uh, six to eight hours of continuing education with the uh, students tutorial the abdomen the ob and the cardiac and so that was the lecture experience um and then what was the other question
0: i think i just asked you what has been your favorite or most rewarding over the years to do as far as between author lecturer and educator
2: they're all rewarding,
0: but now you wouldn't hear that
2: as I work on the textbook.
0: <laughs> I get that a lot of grumbling happens yeah, in yeah, that blank, <laughs> blank textbook. Okay,
2: it has a name. It's the blank textbook, and uh, but uh, certainly when it's finished or when um, you're you're somewhere and somebody says, "I use your textbook," that that's a feel-good experience. Not every presentation was outstanding um, and wonderful, but that's a very rewarding um, opportunity. And then um, education. The great part of education is learning. To to be able to teach and to see a student have an aha moment um, and what they learn and what they share. And uh, what they tell you, they saw in clinical. And when they come in and said, I could do that. I did a renal stenosis. And I did it exactly the way you said we should. And and that's very rewarding. And they will come in and said, we just finished a um, a elastography examination on the liver. And it was so exciting. And that's how I learned, is what they um, are really applying in clinical, so they're all rewarding, and at depending on, um, it changes from day to day. What's more rewarding, but <laughs> commencement services is is a great experience.
1: Yeah. So, with all those rewarding experiences, have you had the opportunity to interact with international sonography, either on educator level or sonographer or traveling?
2: Yeah, okay, oh, international. Uh, yes, there were, uh, I guess in speaking, I've spoken um, in Toronto, and that was actually an SDMS sponsored uh, registered review many, many years ago. Um, in the year 2003, and uh, 1993, two times um, I spoke at the, uh, in Australia, and The Australasian Society of Ultrasound and Medicine, the sonographers there, similar to what SDMS did in the United States, invited me to share with them how uh, to have their own separate uh, organization. And so that was the 1993 visit, and I gave four presentations and met with their new board of directors and uh, shared some experiences from the uh, Americas. In 2003, I went with Joan Baker on the ambassador program to Australia, and that was very exciting. Um, We went to Melbourne and Sydney um, and uh, spoke with their um, national leaders and went to all of their facilities. Their biggest concern at that time in 2003 was the fact there was not enough MSK textbooks and information And they were performing just an amazing number of MSK examinations more in some facilities than OBGYN because they had the private hospitals and the public hospitals. And the public hospitals, 2003, did not all have um, your MRI. And so sonography was an MSK uh, examination on a high priority. And then the private hospitals next to athletic um, schools, it was a very high um, number of organizations. And then uh, I've been to China four times, but once was with the ARDMS. uh, The Chinese government invited the ARDMS and we left the day after I became chair uh, to uh, test their uh, cardiologists with the ARDMS certification exam. So those were my experiences as a sonographer. And then two summers as a a radiographer slash sonographer, I was an external examiner at the University of Kuwait, which was two-week events. Um, And they bring you over when it's 120 degrees, but everything's air conditioned there. So, (laughs) and that was an interesting experience to see limited an extensive um, radiography, um, and, and the kinds of diseases and processes, many, many um, renal disorders. Uh, horseshoe kidneys uh, were not as uncommon there. Uh, uh, and this is with the um, most of the Arab people, not the other individuals that were there from um, to support their society and their structure, and other, uh, places and everything. So that was the international, um, uh, events.
0: That was quite an international event. Exactly. <laughs> that was even more than I thought you were going to say that you've been on. And that's so interesting too. I love, I mean, when we started the podcast, a lot of my interest stem from what are sonographers in other countries, if they do exist. What are they seeing in their practices? I mean, I see lots of two vessel cords, or I'm seeing lots of, you know, pelvic ectasis, and what are they seeing? And what kind of things are more common within those populations of people? So the horseshoe kidney thing is incredibly interesting. Not only has there been a huge amount of change in the field of sonography, but naturally overall progression in technology has an impact on the methods in which sonography students are instructed. What is it like to educate today's sonography student compared to when you first became an educator in the field? Today's sonography
2: students um, are different in their expectations of immediacy. Everything is immediate. Uh, uh, Did you see my email? No, when did you send it? About 11.30 last night. And so they're expecting um, faster, much faster turnaround. Um, what I see uh, in, in teaching is that uh, there has to be more application and much more feedback than in uh, years past. They uh, get much better results in providing faster feedback to the students on their progress, on their clinical evaluations and everything like that. But what has not changed at all is uh, for, to help them To grow and become professionals and to provide the service to the patient. The patient isn't uh, an examination. You're not going to do an OB. You get to perform an obstetrical examination on a patient and that's a a leap for some of the students to learn um, is that uh, they're, they're not doing an exam. They're providing a service to the patient. That's very important. And then um, through all of the changes uh, in the classroom, you have such diversity of students. You have uh, from the baby boomers to the millennials. And so if you just look at the group of students in class, those who can't put a cell phone or a uh, 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 tablet down to those who are taking copious notes or following along on various things. So there's a, a mass array of differences in age groups in the classroom. And one thing also that hasn't changed is I still learn from teaching to prepare great lessons for the students. I, I find it great. They probably don't think so much, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> or examinations and other ways to evaluate their progress is a learning experience um, all of the time. There's so many wonderful changes that have occurred um, in healthcare, care. And uh, so those are the best um, to take those and help the students adjust from where they are to a clinical application. So
1: you've actually provided a great transition for my next question, is what do you project for educational systems in the future, including potential for advanced practice sonographers in other areas beyond the cardiac and vascular that are just starting to bloom?
2: Okay, and I think the cardiac role, the cardiac model of advanced practice is worth further investigation and adoption, and uh, Lorinda, you know, we've been discussing this with STMS for how many years so, uh, since the turn of the century. Um, there is a place, uh, we always knew that stenographers, even though it is not in our scope of practice because we do work under the direction and authentic, authentic um, uh, physicians and that kind of thing. But good sonographers are not making a diagnosis, cannot do that, but make great interpretations as they scan and that is becoming an advanced practice because a great sonographer, good application specialist sonographer is in an advanced clinical practice uh, providing those skills. And uh, I, I noted uh, talking about uh, some other changes in the emergency area, the point of care we should have in the, these departments, these emergency departments, when you're buying equipment, who are you going to put with that equipment, assign that equipment with those competencies and proficiencies? It's surely is it not just a sonographer, but a sonographer with advanced skills. And a physician once told me, I love our um, uh, point of care because it's so much better to see what you're looking at than to listen for something you're looking at. And so I think the changes, uh, the career ladder for uh, sonographers, um, for some sonographers, is, would be very much fulfilled with an advanced practice um, certification examination in the future. And because it recognizes the number of sonographers who are involved in advanced practice.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And so you said that cardiology, you do see that you that place for advanced. Is there one of the specific specialties where you think, you know, that, um, isn't a, a place where I see an advanced care role developing?
2: No, I I think all of the um, current certification examinations, MSK, um, OB, abdomen, adult echocardiography, pediatric echocardiography, I'm um, going no, miss them. The new pediatric. All of those are certainly when the sonographer has that kind of competency and proficiency that the physician and the nurse practitioners and the PAs are coming to that sonographer and saying, asking, what did you scan? What's your interpretation? What are you giving me? That certainly is advanced practice. Um, and it's beyond the sonographer prior to that could certainly say, here is a hyperechoic, a hypoechoic, an echopenic mass, this is this and that. But another one with advanced practice can pull together with the clinical uh, findings, with the patient's history. And um, that's, I think, a big step. On that they might not be called an advanced practice. It may become something like a physician's assistant in sonography because the PA certainly and the nurse practitioners um, are probably providing a good role model for the sonographers to evaluate and possibly adopt.
0: Great. I hear you. I, I understand that. So you mentioned the point of care ultrasound being used in the emergency room um, with the point of care ultrasound on the horizon. And now there being a credential, um, a certification, correct, that you can take for point of care. What is What is having the access, easier access, so smaller machines, cheaper handheld devices, more Um, point-of-care ultrasound in the hand of physicians and patients at home eventually. What does that mean for the future of the diagnostic medical sonographer in both a positive and maybe a negative impact?
2: I think right now there is a negative impact because you have many physicians um, using these smaller devices, the the more mobile devices uh, uh, can take it home with me, can bring it here or there. Um, And Point of Care, though, has been out of the gate now for about 10 years. uh, uh, When the emergency uh, physicians started adopting the use of sonography, but um, we now do have Point of Care, a lot of um, the webinars, textbooks, things of that nature. But I think it's sort of so broad That it needs to be narrowed and down to the specialty areas. And it's broad, it's an emergency department, but an emergency department, what are they doing? What is a physician or a PA? performing with this wonderful, portable, smaller equipment? Are they expected to perform an MSK on this um, motorcycle injury, then move over here uh, for this emergency obstetrical examination? And so the specialties in point of care are, is what's lagging behind. And you cannot have um, a physician um, be, Performing all of these different types of examinations and being proficient at all of these different uh, procedures in getting the images. They might be great, they are. Some of them are, are great. Yes. Emergency room, um, emergency department physicians, but that doesn't necessarily equate to being um, the most proficient, competent sonographer.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think as the sonography is uh, becoming more specialized with fetal echo and MSK and breast being separate from small parts, and um, it seems like at least putting limitations on what somebody, when they are certified for point of care, what they're being certified in might be part of that. And really um, holding them to keeping within that scope of practice that they are certified in.
2: I do think the point of care in providing and, and having a, uh, a certification process, I think that's a great start. ARDMS started at that. We had the certification process, and certainly all of the certifications have become more specialized. There's a breast There's a pediatric. And so that's probably a very good role model for the point of care. Now you're learning, you're getting certified, you understand um, some sonography principles and instrumentation and how to use the equipment and how to improve your images Do you understand what to look for next? Where to go? What more to add to those examinations to get a complete imaging visualization that matches the clinical presentation of the patient? Sure. Not all negative. Really great people discussing it isn't the leap. What is the medical, what is the health care industry? going to um from from the healthcare care providers not the equipment manufacturers from the healthcare care providers going to provide in the way of the correct stepping stones for the point of care service as well as the um department the uh sonography departments sure sorry long answer no
0: that's no okay. it's a great good. summary very good yeah
1: In fact, you used a word there that uh, helps me uh, to my next question. What for Diane Kawamura, as far as you professionally, what is your next leap? What are you (laughs) going to have on the horizon for you? Um, And also, just so we understand, you've alluded to it earlier. You got your bachelor's degree. I know you have a PhD. And I don't know when that occurred, but I know at some point in there, there had to have been a master's in something as well. Can you give us a little insight in that as well?
2: Um, Personal and professional, the next leap? Yes. Um, Well it may be um retirement <laughs>
0: that's fair to say you've done so much
2: <laughs> so but uh, relative to whether or not uh, that that's sort of a personal decision whether or not to uh when to retire from the university um i think at, in the retirement years hopefully um, I can stay focused and, and write on uh, some needed textbook, maybe in point-of-care practice and follow uh, some point-of-care physicians. Um, but I haven't laid out a long-term kind of goals and on um, that kind of thing. I do know that I'm looking at a um, one to two-year retirement from the university. Um, and then personally, uh, spend more time um, with uh, our uh, son and daughter, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Sure. And so those are just the goals um, somewhere very soon down the road.
0: You are very entitled to that. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And congratulations on that upcoming uh, retirement as it's a culmination of so much hard work and time that you've given. So... Thank you. Um, I, I, I do want to, I'm interested about the, um, the PhD as well.
2: The PhD, well, I earned that in 1993, so it's been oh. some time to go. And, um, and, and I do think it's uh, a worthwhile aspiration for all of the sonographers who are teaching in colleges and universities to pursue um, an educational track. Um, I, it, was a, it was a great experience. I didn't say that when I was, uh, <laughs> upon graduation, uh, it was a great, uh, it was in 1992 I finished and that was a great uh, achievement there.
0: Wow, so you Absolutely. were teaching and going to school to complete your PhD at the same time. So you got it from Weber Safe?
2: No, my PhD is from the University of Utah in um, education administration. And I don't know what kind of administrator I became, but I I stayed with the education. Um, My master's and BS and associate, those all came from Weber State University, yes.
0: Well, then this leads right into it. So which of your many accomplishments are you most proud of? And what legacy would you like to leave on the field of sonography, and, I know this is a big part, but in the world in general, what would you like to leave behind one day when when people ask about who was Diane Kawamara and what did she most care about?
2: I think a simplistic legacy is that I was a good role model. That I, for others, that um, there was some example Set there were some mistakes made. I know that, but we learn from mistakes, and uh, that uh, a legacy is keep on learning. There's the Delta, keep on climbing. With her, we, we should never ever quit learning. Learning is just so important. Um, I I would like uh, to um, uh, leave also the concern. Um, for all sonography students to make a lot of effort, make a decision, is this important in your life? And um, if it's not important, why are you pursuing? Find the standard. Find the joy of providing uh, these images and everything and providing good service. But I don't... No. no, I got a no legacy to leave, but I hopefully there were over the years, um, some, some, something I left that helped somebody else enjoy being a teacher, a student, um, and being very involved in a wonderful uh, profession.
0: That's a perfect answer. And I think that's very well said. Diane, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are so honored to have had you on the podcast, to have let you tell your story and really let people understand the heart that you put behind educating the sonographers within the field. And again, we just thank you so much for your time and for your contribution to the occupation over the years. I'd also like to thank audience members for joining us on today's episode. Don't miss episode number 12, where we get to sit down with Mrs. Jean Lee Spitz. Jean Lee has been involved in many ways in the occupation of sonography, uh, in research, been a program director, president of the SBMS, editor of the journal Diagnostic Medical Sonography, and the list goes on and on. So please join us to hear her story. Until then, take care of yourself, and we'll see you next time.